haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Joe, one of the pastors here, and uh, we're currently in a series uh, working our way through the book of Micah, prophet in the Old Testament, uh, seven chapters. Uh, today we're going to cover chapters four and five, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll be through this book uh, before you know it. Um, before we do, let's, uh, let's pray. God, as we um, come before you, as we gather as an opportunity to sing songs and to give you praise, as we um, hear your word read, and as your spirit comes and meets us in this space and encourages us and maybe convicts us, that more than anything, Lord, we would know that you are, in fact, uh, closer than a brother, closer than a sister, that you said you would never leave us or forsake us, which means you haven't left us or forsaken us. Remind us just how close you are. In your name, amen. I'm a, I'm a, it's funny because I, I was going to start this sermon off talking about how tired I am, and uh, the reality is, is uh, really kind of tired just because of the state of the world. Anyone else just kind of tired because of this, just the ongoing problems that happen in the world? The, the ironic part is that I'm actually physically tired today, so I'm like, it has double meaning. I was working on my house yesterday, and, uh, but so it seems kind of appropriate. I'm like, I'm, I'm actually exhausted, and uh, my spirit's a little exhausted too. Um, in fact, there just seems to be power at work in this world that uh, I work and don't feel like I have any say to, to change, that there's forces at work and there's people with power and money and influence that are doing things that I'm like, that's not what God would want. Sometimes they're even doing it in the name of God or in the, even in the name of Jesus. And it just kind of breaks my heart a little bit, but I feel powerless. Am, am I the only person who sometimes just feels powerless to, to bring about the change we want to see in the world? As I think about what's going on, you know, over, just over the last year, and I won't go into too many details, but just to sit with it for a second, you know, this last year, and I, I actually read an article that it's going to, that it's, that it's kicking off again, um, you know, parents separated from their kids and, and put into detention centers. In fact, I was, uh, um, side story, one time we put our dog in a kennel back when we were living in Athens, and uh, we, we put our dog in the kennel, and we came back after a week later. She was so just... Oh my gosh, we were like, we can never take her to this kennel again. And it, well, there's nothing inherently wrong about the kennel, except for you had to pay extra for them to have playtime. That just seemed criminal. And we couldn't afford very much, so poor dog didn't get a lot of playtime. But the kennel itself, she's this dog she used to sleeping on a couch, we're, we're those kinds of dog parents. And um, um, she's in this cement floor, chain link fence, you know, she's miserable. And she came back so sad, I was like, my, like I felt so guilty, I felt so horrible for her, and she's a dog. I don't even like dogs. Alyssa likes dogs. That's why we have a dog. But I still put it really horrible. And then I see in the news where they're putting kids who are separated from their parents. Cement floor, chain link fence. And I was just like, what do I, wanna, how, what do I, what do, I do with that? How do I, like, what's the, resp how do I, like, and it's easy to distance myself. It's funny because you know, to be honest with you, I probably felt more guilt and, and pain being in the space where my dog was than even seeing something on the news, if I'm honest. We separate ourselves. You think about the ways in which men, men, artists and pastors who I've respected, finding out that they've mistreated, abused, taken advantage of women, and I'm like, what is going on? 
And you just, I look at this world and I see all of these people in power and, and I run across many of you in conversation and otherwise, and I'm like, well, what do we do? Like, how do we, what's the, do we just wait for Jesus to come back and say, screw it? You know, the world's just, it's hopeless. Well, as I began studying in Micah, as we move into chapter four, what I found is, is that Micah actually has something to say about this. What do we do when the world isn't as it should be? How do we produce change? And there's a couple ways to produce change. Um, he's going to talk about two of them that are going to become the framework for our time together. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn along. Um, we're doing a series a little differently than series in the past. Uh, we're actually just uh, spending some time in Scripture, and I'm working through verse by verse. So in some ways, it's a Bible study, um, a Bible study of a book that is kind of um, uh, one that I've heard many people say, I've never read that book before. Well, that's why we're studying it. Micah chapter 4, he's a prophet. He has a hard word for people during a difficult time when many people in power were corrupt. We've spent some time talking about some of that corruption already. And we're going to talk about one of the things he has to say about the way God produces change in the world. So Micah chapter 4, starting with verse 1, um, you can read along uh, in your Bibles. It'll be on the screen as well. It says this, in the last days. I'm going to pause there for a second. He's saying, there's coming a day... In the last days, somewhere in the future, this is what the world's going to look like, all right? So he's giving a picture. He's, he's dealt with in the previous chapters all the corruption, all the current events of his time, and he's saying there's coming a day where things will look different, and then he begins to lay out what that is going to look like and how we're going to get there. So in the last days, he says, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and peoples will stream to it. It's this idea in the ancient world that the closest you could get to God was like God was literally in the heavens. And so mountains and tall buildings, they were like ways in which you got closer to God. And there's a sense even today, if you want to get close to God, not in a literal sense, but in a spiritual sense, go climb a mountain. And there's something spiritual about that. If, if we got some rock climbers, because there's something beautiful about being up high, being able to see the vista. But it was believed maybe partly because of that and because of their understanding of where God was, that God was up in the heavens, literally, that if you got higher, you'd be closer to God. And so high things, high places were places of worship, and that's how they referred to them. So even the wrong kinds of worship happened in high places. And he's saying there is coming a day where Jerusalem is going to rise up out of the earth and become the highest of the high places. So it's this uh, kind of like this apocalyptic like manga type of story where like the, the earth actually begins to shift and move. That's the picture we're getting. And like because Jerusalem is up on a hill, but there are other mountains higher than it. So he's painting this picture that Jerusalem and the temple is going to rise even more and it's going to be this on this hill and people are going to see it and people are going to flock to it. He says, many nations will come and say, verse two, many nations will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He says, people, all kinds of people and the nations from all over the world are going to be hungry for what God has to offer. They're going to see this mountain, and they're going to begin streaming to it. They're, going to, they're just going to go because they, they need what God has. There's a day coming where people will be hungry for what God has to offer. And this is what God has to offer. Verse 3 says this, far and he will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. And they will beat swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. It says there's coming a day where all of the tools used for warfare 
will be converted into tools used for agriculture. Which, if you think about it, um, really, they're very similar, tools used for warfare and tools, especially during this time, and tools used for agriculture. I mean, a spear, I mean, the difference between spearing someone and shoveling, it's just an angle. <laughs> and it's the same metal used in both. I mean, this is what you see, like the, the, indus- the war industry, especially during this time and still today, and the agriculture industry needs two things, strong metals that are able to like cut into stuff. And, and, and strong people, at this time, men. So by brute force and by using metals, that's how the war industry worked and that's how the agriculture industry worked. But that's, that's as far as the comparison went. So he says the, the metals that you were using to kill each other, God's going to come and he's going to negotiate, he's going to mediate the, the, the war, and, and you're going to not need those metals for war anymore, so you're going to actually hammer them into shovels, into plowshares. You're going to be able to use them to produce something that actually gives life. This is the metaphor I want to sit with as we go through the rest of the passage. It's been given to us, so I want to sit with it for a little bit. What, he's, what I think is being said here is there's, there's really kind of two ways to bring about change in the world. One is by mere force, right? It's just you, you, ha- you are stronger, you have better weapons, you have better technology. It's happened ages over, all the time. You, have the, you are the stronger entity, and you then, by force, can overcome another group of people. We call that war. That is one way to produce change, by mere force. The other way, though, is, is different. Agriculture, as a metaphor, is very interesting. Because war, you bring about change by forcing it. Agriculture, you bring about change, what we call growth, by cultivating it. And cultivate literally means to dig in the dirt. We got some dirt over here. It literally means to actually till up the dirt and to... Um, Produce change by digging in it, by cultivating it. And, and here's the interesting thing. War, um, if, if someone had a, a loaf of bread and you wanted it, war would say, kill them and take the loaf of bread. Agriculture, on the other hand, would say, do it like this. If you want a loaf of bread, then what you need to do is first dig in the dirt, till it up, and then you need to get all the weeds out, and then you got to plant it, and then you got to water, and then you got to wait and wait and wait and wait, and then when it grows, you have to go through the hard process of harvesting it, and then you got to thresh it, and you got to winnow it, you got to get the seed down, then you got to grind it, and then you got to sift it, and then you got to add some ingredients and knead it, then you got to let that sit and wait some more, and then you bake it and you wait some more, and then it's done, and you slice it, and you've got your bread, like a year later. (laughs) And God is saying that there's a day coming where your weapons of war will be turned into Weapons of agriculture, which is another way of saying that the change I think God wants to produce in the world takes a lot longer than we like. That growing change is this long process that starts with a little bit of work in the soil and the tiniest of seeds, often. I've got some grass seeds over here. They're not very big. Mustard seeds are even smaller. We won't get into that passage, but you might be familiar with it. It's a theme you see throughout Scripture, isn't it? And then he says, this is what's going to happen because of it. Next verse, he says, And every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig, and no one will make them afraid. 
In other words, there's coming a day where because we've fallen in love with agriculture instead of war, as a metaphor and maybe in reality, that you won't need locks on your doors. The home security uh, uh, business is a big business these days. Uh, By 2022, experts suspect that it'll be a $60 billion business, home security around the world, predominantly in wealthier countries. Um, Cards on the table, we spend quite a bit of money on home security um, in our house um, uh, for good reason. We want to be secure. We, we pay for uh, alarm monitoring. We, we're we're, we're going to spend a couple hundred dollars on a new door. Why? Because security, and then also we need one that's not letting all the cold air in, but that's, you know, beside the point. There's this, there's this really beautiful saying. You'll actually, I've seen it on shirts, and I've seen it on memes. It says, if God's blessed you, um, uh, don't build uh, taller fences, build longer tables. People who made that didn't, haven't lived in the neighborhood we live in. Um, no, I need a taller fence. I mean, I just do. It's just, it's, so there's a sense that like, and this is part of the tension that we live in, isn't it? Because the question we have to ask as we look at this, this, um, um, this passage is, is this something that's still in the future or did it arrive when Jesus arrived? Was the last days still down the road, or, or is it here already? And this is a, a legitimate question. And honestly, if you want to understand the difference between so many different lot of Christians in America specifically, but around the world, it's how they answer that question around a lot of issues. Do, do we do something right now to bring God's kingdom to earth, or do we say, screw it, Jesus is coming back, we'll worry about it then. There's nothing I can do in the process. And, and when you play out those philosophies, this theological perspective, it produces really kind of two groups of Christians and then a lot in between that are looking at the world drastically different. And that's a serious question because there's a sense that I'm like, yes, we should be bringing this about, you know, like right now, but I'm not getting rid of my security system. You know what I mean? So what does it look like for God's kingdom to be here, but not yet? which is a theological phrase I learned in seminary. That's the best answer I was given on how to answer this. The kingdom of God is here, and it is yet to come. Okay. Well, how much of it is here? How much of it is yet to come? That's the tension we live in. What we do know is verse 5. This is their response to that question. Verse 5, it says, All the nations, they may walk in the name of their gods. In other words, they're going to they're keep doing whatever they're doing. They're not on board yet. Someday is going to come where all the people of the world are going to want what God has to offer. But right now, they're going to walk in their own gods. We will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. That's one way to answer it. We're going to, in other words, regardless of what other people are doing, we're going to do what we can right now to live into God's preferred future here on earth. He goes on, verse 6 says this. It says, uh, in that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame. I will assemble the exiles and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame a remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. As for you, O watchtower of the flock, O stronghold of the daughter of Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to the daughter of Jerusalem. He's saying that there's going to be a day. The people of Israel at this point are, are pretty sure in the, within the next couple hundred years, they're going, to, they're going to collapse. Their nation's going to collapse. And he said there's a day coming where God's going to gather and build the nation back up. What I find interesting here is he says, I'm going to build it up by the lame. In other words, after war has 
passed through a nation which was on its way to Israel, and it was already encountering Israel and eventually would, would take over Judah. As war comes into this country of Israel, it's going to leave wounded people. People are going to be hurt and beaten, not just physically, but emotionally, as war terrorizes a country. And he says, but those are the people that I'm going to take and I'm going to gather up and I'm going to build my nation out of the lame. Think about it once again in this metaphor of war and agriculture. Someone who's lame, this is why people are left lame in war. They're useless to their country's defense systems. I mean, a lame soldier doesn't do me any good. But agriculture, by definition, starts with something really small, really weak. And, and because it's cared for and it's tended and it's it can grow into something that can shift concrete. It can grow into something that can be turned into planks to build houses or the fruit can feed entire nations. It starts out with something as lame as a, as a, as a little seed, but it's able to grow over time to become something truly powerful, truly transformative. I wonder, you know, as we look at the world we live in and the unique problems that are going on around us, if some of us, as some of you nodded earlier, feel that maybe you're just not powerful enough to bring about change, uh, powerful enough to do something about it. And I wonder if maybe, if you feel like there's something that keeps you from really being useful, you feel lame in a certain area, you feel like there's a weakness in your life that keeps you from being used by God, I wonder if maybe it's just you need to be planted. That that, that that weakness doesn't disqualify you, that God actually chooses the lame, the weak. In fact, in Corinthians it says, I'll, I'll use the foolish of the world to shame the wise. 1 Corinthians 1, 27. I'll use the weak things of this world to shame the strong. It's almost like God says, you, if you have all that you need to accomplish what you've set out to accomplish, then I can't do anything with you. But if you've got these weaknesses and these maybe shortcomings or these, these problems in your life that you're like, these aren't useful, then God's like, okay, I can work with that. You've given me something to work with. Let's plant you. Let's cultivate it. Let's give you some time. It's going to be a slow process, but you will be used by me. He goes on, verse 9, he says, why do you cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your counselor perished? That pain seizes you like that of a woman in labor that takes on a whole new meeting after being in the delivery room with our, uh, the birth of our son. Uh, he says, Rither in agony, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon there. You will be rescued. He basically says here, uh, and then he goes on, then the Lord will redeem you out of the hands of the enemies. He says, you're going to, okay, there's going to be a time of exile. You're going to have to live where you don't want to live. And it's this, this intense, like, you, you've, you know, this is the idea of, of uh, women in labor. is another metaphor that scripture loves to use. It's this idea that you know good things are coming, but right now it's horrible. Is that fair, mothers? Okay. I don't want to misspeak here. I've never given birth before. But there's, you, you hope, like there's life on the other end of it, but right now, this is, and it's, this, it's a nine-month process, and then it, 
it's the same thing with agriculture. This is what he's saying. So you want to bring new life into the world. You want to bring change into the world. You want to see something new happen. Then, you, then it's this waiting that is involved. And the waiting is sometimes the most painful thing. But I would also argue that what God does in our lives while we wait might be worth more than what we've been waiting for. That there's change that happens in us and even in our communities while we wait. So this is the idea of cultivating. It's this process of making sure all of the conditions are right so that life can grow. Fragile life, not forcing it, not cutting it down, not violence, but this fragile, beautiful thing we call life in all of its you know, glory. In fact, I would argue that when God created the world, his desire was not that we would murder each other. I know that's a bold statement. No, when God created the world, his hope was not that we would be at war. And, and it's in our world, there is, and, and for the history of the world, there's almost always been a war. Nations at war with each other. And when God originally created the world, our primary industry was not meant to be war. It was meant to be agriculture. If you go back to the story of Genesis, and he created, first off, he created Adam and then Adam and Eve, but he created Adam uh, out of the dirt, as if to say something, right? He forms them out of the dusts of the earth. And then he says, I want you to take care of and watch over this garden that I've planted you in. The take care of, it can also be translated cultivate. In other words, I want you to dig in the earth. I want you to, you know, you've got this, you've got this garden. And it's got all the fruit you need except for the one tree. Don't do that. But you've got all of the food you can need in this garden. But you're going to have to cultivate it. You're gonna, there are some plants you're going to have to cut down. There's some dirt you're going to have to dig up. There's some transplanting you're going to. There's the original occupation of Adam and Eve before there was ever even a fall was to cultivate. The slow work of making something new. And that's what he says here over and over again. He goes on, he says, um, verse 11, he says, But now many nations are gathered against you. They say, let, the, let her be defiled, let her eyes be over his eye. And what he's saying is like, the nations have gathered around Israel, Israel's in a tough spot, and the nations are making fun of Israel. And, and the nation of Israel doesn't like that. Nations don't like to be made fun of. Some people aren't bothered by that more than others, but generally speaking, nations don't like to be in front of. And that's what's happening. He says, the nations are gathering around you. They're going to make fun of you, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. If we could just hold on to that for a second. The nations still don't understand the plan, do they? We don't oftentimes understand the plan. He says, they don't get what God's actually doing here. He says, they don't understand this plan, and he who gathers in like sheaves on the threshing floor. He, in other words, he says, the nations have come to make fun of you, but actually God is gathering them on the threshing floor. Now, the threshing floor, I had to do some research. I'm not a farmer. In, 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 any, any agricultural people here that studied it or who practiced it? Good. So I can say whatever I want. It <laughs> makes my job a lot easier. Here's my understanding uh, from uh, Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> No, but threshing is this idea. You eventually have to, like, uh, you have to separate the seed from, from the chaff. You know, not everything that grows is edible. So you're trying to get to the edible part. So you take wheat or whatever, you've got the seed, and that's going to be ground up and turned into flour, and you get bread and other things down the road. Well, you have to separate it, and that's winnowing. You, you, they would, like, literally throw it up into a nice breeze, and the, the light stuff would blow away. Seeds would fall, and you'd end up with 
predominantly the seeds. And, and now technology does this a, a lot more efficiently, but it, it's essentially the same process. Well, threshing would happen before that, that you would take these stalks of, that would include chaff and stuff that you couldn't eat as well as the seeds, and they had to be broken. They had to be loosened from each other. The seed had to be loosened from the stalk in order for when you threw it up in the air or, sh or shake it like a machine does now, that the seed would, would separate. And so the way in which they would loosen the, the seed from the, the stalk is, is have like oxen, just just like tread on it. That was the threshing floor. So these oxen or other animals would just walk over in a circle and they would just, they would be loosening it up. And he says, this is what I'm going to do for the nations. The nations are gathering to make fun of you, but really I'm gathering to the threshing floor, which is actually a really intense sort of metaphor that God's using here. For the one, one sake, the Israelites are going to read this and they're going to love it. We get to tread on our enemies. That's the first, that's the surface level interpretation. The enemies are coming to the nation of Israel and we're going to tread on them like oxen tread over the the chaff and the seeds. But when you think about it, God doesn't just say that the nations are going to gather and you're going to tread on them, like beat them into the ground. He says they're going to be gathered like a threshing floor. He goes on, he, he gives them this command, rise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will give you horns of iron and I will give you hoofs of bronze. In other words, I'll make you like the best ox ever. And you will break their wealth to pieces many nations. And you will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord on all, all, all the earth. So service level is this idea like you're going to beat them into submission, right? Which sounds counterintuitive. That sounds like warfare, doesn't it? And yet he's using an agriculture metaphor. And what I think is really being said here is the nations aren't just getting tread on in this analogy for the sake of beating them down. That in reality, it's like agriculture. There's some really good stuff. But you've got to separate all of the other things from that good stuff. And that's going to be your job, people of Israel. You're going to help all the people of the world hold on to the good that is in them already and help separate all the chaff from that. And he goes on. If you jump ahead to, to Micah chapter 5, verse 10, he, he tells you exactly what has to be broken away from the nations. He says, in that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. And these, what he's saying is like chariots, horses and chariots, this is, this is, this is war machines. This is the, the ancient tank. And he says, I'm going to destroy those. So that's part of the chaff that has to be removed. He says, I'll destroy the cities and tear down all the strongholds. Once again, these, these, these uh, not just cities, but the strongholds, like the places of defense. So you're not going to need those anymore. And he says, I will destroy your witchcraft, and you will no longer cast your hands. And I will destroy your carved images and your sacred stones from among you, and you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. In other words, I'm going to destroy all the idols and all the witchcraft and all the weird sort of stuff that you're doing that is really unhealthy, and it's based on a lot of times in human sacrifice, and it's based on worshiping things that you've made. You've made these idols out of wood and gold, and you think that makes them a god, and it's just a, you're just worshiping your own creation. That's what people did back then. We don't do that anymore. We don't worship our own creation more than God, but that's what they did. And he says, I will uproot you, for, up, up, uh, root you from among, among you, your asher poles, and demolish your cities, and I'll take vengeance and anger and wrath upon the nations that have not obeyed me. Once again, there's essentially two things that have to be cut away from the seed. War and idols. Now, I don't want to sound repetitive, but here's another way of saying it. They failed to love their neighbors, and they failed to love their God with all of their heart and all of their soul and all their strength. Two great commandments. It's the primary theme in most of the prophets. War and idols. They failed to love their neighbors, 
and they failed to love God with all of their heart, with all their soul, and all their strength. Jump back to uh, the next verse, which is chapter 5, verse 1. It says this. So he says, Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrath, though you are small in the clans of Judah. He says, okay, but Bethlehem, you're really small. Do you see this theme? So I'm going to use the lame, I'm going to use the small, I'm going to use the stuff that isn't very powerful. That's how I'm going to change the world. It says, you, Bethlehem, you, though you are small, um, one of you will come for me. One who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. He says, Bethlehem, though you are small and, and not really that important, I'm going to bring a ruler out of you that will bring the change we want to see in this world. This passage out of Micah is one of the, one of the passages um, people are familiar with. You've heard this passage read if you've ever been to a Christmas Eve service. It is probably read at every Christmas Eve service because it's nestled, or, or Epiphany, because it's nestled right in the story of the wise men, of the Magi. They say, this is why we're going to Bethlehem to look for the king, because Micah says that out of, out of Bethlehem, that's where the king's going to come. And when you think about this, the Christmas story, which, which friends, we're getting really close to that season. How many people hate that and how many people love it? Um, I'm, a, I'm a lover of it, so I'm really excited. Uh, everyone's like, gosh, it's so cold and rainy. I'm like, yeah, but it's it's like it's cooling off, you know? It's Christmas is coming, and Alyssa hates that, all of that, all of the cold, all of the Christmas. But uh, <laughs> it's fair. I'm so, it's everyone, you know that, right? I'm not calling around. If you didn't, now you do. So, but I'm so excited. And you think, but think about the Christmas story. It is yet another metaphor, literally, of a woman giving birth. And here's the thing God says, I'm going to come to earth to change things. And how does he do it? Does he come as a full-grown man who can have power and exhort that power over people and do change right away, immediate change? No. He comes as a baby. I'm not going to wait 30 years before he even starts his ministry. You ever waited 30 years for something? Some of you in the room, I know you haven't because you're not even 30 yet. <laughs> Others in the room, maybe you have waited 30 years for something. The Messiah would come, Emmanuel, God with us, and then 30 years later, he starts his ministry. Gosh, God, why do you choose this way? This, this woman who has the labor pains, this agriculture, this planting of a seed and watching it grow slowly, carefully, this fragile baby that, that was almost killed. They, they, had to, they became refugees from Herod because why would you come in a fragile sort of way? Not only that, but when Micah says these words, oh, a ruler will come out of Bethlehem, 700 years go by before Jesus is born. Have you ever waited 700 years for something? I wonder, as we uh, kind of think about what God might have to say in this, this passage, I wonder how many of us, um, you know, struggle with this. that we wish we could produce the change we want to see right now in our lives, in our family's life, in our city, in our nation, whatever. And, and I, I think about the New Testament, and it rings, this is true over and over again. One of the things that we read in the, in the letters, it says, um, um, do not grow weary of doing good, for in due time you'll reap a harvest. It's this agricultural metaphor again, isn't it? That you, that you have to just keep 
cultivating the earth in, in, in due time, because you trust in the process of agriculture versus you reject the process of war, and you, you, you trust in the process, and you, in due time, you will reap a harvest. So what, what change do you want to see in the world? This is an honest reflection question. What, what change do you want to see in yourself? What change could happen in you that could help change the world? Do you feel that change, that kind of change is impossible? Do you, do you th to be think you don't have enough power to make it change? That you're unable to force it to change in you? Do you wish that you could just force it? Push through, knock down the doors, push the people out of the way, and just like, this is how it has to be. Just listen to me and I'm right. What if instead of striving to force change, we simply planted a seed and we made small investments over time? The idea of cultivating, Co committed to a long game of change, knowing that you might not see the harvest right away, but that's what it means to plant something. And I'm going to keep caring for it and keep investing in it and keep cultivating and keeping the weeds back. And I'm going to let this thing grow in my life, in my family, in my city. Working at cultivating something. In other words, what if God came to you and said, I'll let you change the very thing that's on your heart. I'll let you change it in this world, in your life. I'll let, within reason, you know, and it's within God's will, you know, but you, you don't want a bad thing. I'm going to assume you don't want a bad thing. So let's say you want a good thing. I said, I'm going to change that thing in the world. And all you have, I'm guaranteed to change. All you have to do is give me 10 years of your life and do whatever I say. That's all. It's not going to change for 10 years, but if you give me 10 years of your life, I'll change the very thing that you wish was different in your life or in this world or city. How many would say, okay, you got 10 years of my life. I'll do whatever you say. And I think how we answer that question kind of tells us whether we actually want to see it change, doesn't it? I mean, how much do we really care? Because I feel like sometimes we'll like read the news or we'll see something and be like, oh, man, I wish that was different. All right, let's go to Target. Move on. You know, but if you knew that it was possible to change something significant in your life, in the world, and you just had to, you just had to give yourself over to God, and he would either change it or change your perspective about it, would you do it? You uh, received recently, uh, they passed around a small piece of paper. I want you to actually think about this. What small thing can you do right now that if planted and given time to grow would change what you want to see? So you've got your piece of paper. Uh, uh, think about this. I mean, there's lots of ways to think about this. I mean, I think about raising a child. The most significant thing um, I've ever done so far um, is uh, play a very small role in, in Finn coming into this world. But I know that one big act of, like, if I got him a really big birthday present for his birthday and that was the only input I had in his life, that, that would, that's not fathering, right? That, that, Helping Finn become the person he's meant to be is, is this slow, steady, long investment, right? Started. You can think of it in, in regards to your career as well. Look at someone who's successful in any career, and there's a good chance that they started small and they made long investment over time. In fact, the, in the book Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell says that it takes roughly about 10,000 hours to become a master of something. So you want to boost change, you want to become a master of something? How many hours have you put in so far? 
It takes 10,000 hours. It's that long, it's not war. You're not forcing it. You're not beating down other people to get what you want. It's just long, slow investment. So what is one thing you can do today that will help you walk and step closer to the change you want to see in yourself, in your world, and in your church? I'm going to give you some time uh, to think about that. Uh, the band wants to come up, they can get settled. But we have here uh, the opportunity for you to actually do this in a very real way. We've got a few pots. Uh, we have an, probably enough for most of us, uh, especially one for every family. So if you're here with a couple and you want to do it together, that could be really meaningful. We've got a pot, and what I'm going to ask you to do is, is actually think of something that you can answer to this. Something you want to see different, something you could see different in your life. Fold it up, uh, put it in the pot. We've got some dirt here. I want you to actually plant it. You're not burying it. Let me be clear. You bury something, it's like, well, then I don't have to worry about it anymore. No, you're planting it. It's this ongoing cultivation. So you put some dirt in there. We do have some seeds here as well. It's just grass seeds. So if you want to actually see a plant grow, that could help with the metaphor, you know. So you can put that in there too. And I got the kind of drip. It's like guaranteed to grow. So it should be good. <laughs> we don't have water, I will say, because I don't want anyone dripping it at this point. But what I'm going to invite you to do is, um, is to take some time and think about something. In your life, in the city, in the world, whatever it be, what's, what do you wish was different? What's one small thing you can start doing right now? And I'm going to invite you during, uh, as we play a little music and eventually our closing song, to come forward as you feel led. Grab one of these pots and actually plan it as an act of worship. Does that make sense? All right. Let's pray. God, as we come and we, as we wrestle and as we think and as we process ask that your spirit would fall on us, that you would speak into our hearts and into our minds something right now, something that, that we could do, that we could partner with you to accomplish, a small change in our life, a small step, uh, just a little seed that we could plant right now that 10, 20, 30 years ago would make a change in our life and in the world. In your name we pray. Amen.